This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Contained herein are the heresies of Radolf Buntwine, erstwhile monk turned traveling medical investigator. Join me as I uncover the blasphemous truth of a plague-ridden world, that ours is not a loving God, and we are not its favored children. The Heresies of Radolf Buntwine, coming January 2nd, wherever podcasts are available. Welcome, friend. Follow me. We're going somewhere dark, somewhere dangerous. Most people would never dare enter the place we are going. There's no telling what horrors we'll find, what terrors we'll uncover. Don't say I didn't warn you. We might discover terrible monsters lurking there. Be careful they could follow you out, or maybe they're already inside you. Are you afraid? Good. Now you are ready to enter the Warning Woods. The Woods. What a mystery. What lies within the dense trees and foliage? Last spring I learned you can never know for certain. Gordon Thomas is the first person I remember coming out of the woods a changed man and I don't mean in some spiritual self-discovery sense. Just the opposite. Gordon Thomas seemed to have lost himself entirely. Gordon wasn't a friend, exactly. More of an acquaintance. I knew him to be a strong spirit, though. He often came into the smoothie bar, where I work, with someone he was about to take on a hike. That's what he did. He guided people on long endurance hikes through the woods. He was the crunchy granola type, and at six foot six and a lean 230, he made people feel safe out there in the wilderness. Gordon always had a big energy about him. The whole vibe in the smoothie shop would shift when he came in. People were quicker to smile, laughed louder and harder, and complained less. He just had that kind of influence. It's what made it so sad to see him afterward. The owner of the smoothie bar, Kirsten, told me the news when I clocked in for my shift one morning. Did you hear? She asked. Gordon took some guy out on a hike and came back alone. I guess he almost got arrested, but they don't know if the guy's dead or not. What? Why would Gordon kill someone? The guy must have run off alone or something, right? I asked. Nobody knows. Gordon is, well, he's not himself. I actually saw him on my way here, just wandering down the sidewalk. Kirsten said. Gordon wasn't one to wander. He always walked with purpose, smiling and waving at anyone who passed by. Although I supposed he would be understandably glum after losing a hiker. Even if they found the guy alive, the incident wouldn't be good for Gordon's business reputation. Weird. Something must have gone really wrong, I said. In the coming days, I learned the situation was far worse than Kirsten made it sound. Apparently Gordon had emerged from the woods, sans customer, wearing a blood-soaked shirt. Someone reported seeing him walking through town and the cops picked him up. They tried to interview him, but he was basically unresponsive. 
He gave short, nondescriptive answers to every question. A test determined the blood on Gordon's shirt belonged to him. So, besides the strange circumstances, there was no evidence of foul play or of Gordon's involvement in the man's disappearance. Gordon still came into the smoothie bar occasionally, but no one smiled or laughed anymore. Especially not him. Sometimes he would just sit at a table and look around for a while, then leave. If he did approach the counter, he never responded to greetings or conversation. He would just point at something on the menu behind me and go sit at a table to wait. I had to start making him half-sized smoothies because he didn't usually drink them and never paid. I felt bad not giving him anything, though. Just as we had all adjusted to the new zombified Gordon Thomas, another person seemingly lost their mind in the woods. The sheriff's department had organized a volunteer search for the man who got lost with Gordon. They planned and executed a thorough search of the woods. However, when they did a head count at the end of the day, they came up one short. It was the librarian, Heather de Alma, Kirsten told me the following morning. She had been part of the search party. She wasn't there at the end. No one saw where she went? I asked. Well, that's the thing. We were supposed to stay buddied up the whole time, but Heather's partner said he wasn't able to keep up with her. Rather than wait around for him, I guess she took off on her own. Sounds like Heather, I said. It was true. Don't let the librarian title fool you. Heather was no mousy bookshelver. I heard Heather had been a marine at another time, but now enjoyed the quiet, slower pace of the library. Or maybe she needed it. She was headstrong, boisterous, and wouldn't put up with any nonsense. I wouldn't have put it past her to break away from a less capable search partner and try to be a hero. There had been a small effort to locate Heather that night, but the deputies called it off once it got dark. They didn't want to lose anyone else. They launched another search in the morning, but there wasn't much of a turnout. Honestly, I think we all expected Heather to come marching out of the woods carrying the missing man over her shoulder. She would come out of the woods on her own two full days later, but she didn't bring anyone with her. Much like Gordon, she had changed. Her face had become expressionless. If she spoke at all, she did so in a hushed whisper. Her knuckles were bruised, and she had scratches all over her arms, too. She had clearly been in some kind of altercation. The police thought the scratches looked like they came from a human. The public wasn't supposed to know that, but someone concerned about what it meant for our community let it leak into the gossip. After a couple of weeks without any news about what had happened to Heather or the missing man, the buzz kind of fizzled out around here. News of the two incidents, along with plenty of rumors, had spread to other communities. People stopped coming to visit or hike. It felt like life had come to a standstill. Every day felt the same. I suppose I was bored and maybe a little suggestible when a coworker pitched a wild idea. A stupid, dangerous wild idea. Let's go find that missing guy, my co-worker Brandon suggested on a Saturday morning. We only worked together on Saturdays since Kirsten liked to take weekends off. Still, we got along well and always had a good time together. An entire search party couldn't find that guy, but you think the two of us could? I asked, not fully taking him seriously. Yeah, why not? Anyway, it would just be for fun. To mix it up, you know? It'll be just like a hike, but with a purpose. Brandon's excitement got to me. 
I hadn't done anything adventurous since Gordon's incident, and I certainly hadn't gone near the woods. Enough time had passed for me to forget the haunting energy that had fallen over the town in those days. I wondered why I hadn't already done anything to break up the monotony. All right, I agreed. We'll do it tomorrow. I'll come get you at ten. I rode my mountain bike to Brandon's duplex at ten the next morning. I found him outside, geared up and ready to go. He slung his backpack over his shoulder and threw his leg over his bike. Ready to do this? He asked. I wasn't totally sure I was, but I trusted Brandon. I knew we would stick together and get out okay. Ready, I replied. Without another word, we clicked our bikes into gear and headed toward the woods. There is a public trail that leads into the woods. It only goes a couple of miles deep before it loops back around, though. That's why people like having someone like the former version of Gordon Thomas to guide them deeper in. But with our bikes and GPS, Brandon and I felt confident enough to venture beyond the path on our own. When we reached the point at which the trail looped around, we pedaled around the trees and brush and into the deep, as us locals call the forest beyond the trail. A few yards into the deep, we found a slight downward slope. As we rode, the slope became steeper. Soon we were both holding our brakes to keep from rolling out of control as we navigated between trees, logs, and bushes. Brandon and I didn't speak much. It took all our focus to stay upright and not collide with anything. Eventually, the ground leveled out and we seemed to reach the base of the hill. Did you know our town was built on a mountain? Brandon joked as we caught our breath. How are we going to get back up? I asked seriously. Brandon's face lost some of its light. He looked back up the hill. I guess we'll need to save some energy, he said. We'll probably have to walk the bikes back up there. We rested for a few minutes before pressing on. After a short ride, we came to a wide stream. A tree had fallen across it. I found a muddy footprint stamped on its bark. This must be the way Gordon brought people, I thought aloud. Gordon hasn't been here for weeks. You really think his footprints would still be here? Brandon made a fair point, but the footprint had to belong to someone. Well, either way, if we want to keep going, we'll have to ditch the bikes, I said. I didn't see how we could get them across the narrow tree without gambling our safety. Brandon was already leaning his bike on a tree and unclipping his helmet. Brandon, I don't want to go too much further, I admitted. Nobody else knows where we are. They won't know where to look if we don't come back. Don't worry, we'll stick together, he replied. We crossed the stream and continued for a while on foot. With no trail to follow, the best we could do was follow the sun and see where it led us. Hills rose and fell around us like waves on a stormy sea. We could rarely see more than a couple hundred feet ahead due to the small peaks. The dynamic hike wore us down substantially. I started to worry I wouldn't have enough energy to make it back, a concern I voiced to Brandon. Yeah, you're right. Bummer, he said. Hey, before we head back, I gotta pee. All right, hurry up though, I said. I'm getting hungry for something besides a granola bar. Brandon started walking away. Hey, where are you going? I asked. I thought we were sticking together. What, do you want to watch me take a leak? Just sit tight, man. I'll be right back, he replied. He walked up a slope and disappeared behind a wide tree at the top. I waited. I probably waited longer than I should have. After almost two minutes passed without a sound, I called out. Brandon? No response. I rolled my eyes. It would be just like him to pull this kind of prank on me. 
I didn't want to give him the satisfaction of scaring me, but I had a sneaking feeling that something bad had happened to my friend. You'd better get ready for a quick punch in the gut if you're planning to ambush me, I said as I approached the tree Brandon had used as a bathroom. I put up my guard and went around the tree. No one jumped out at me. No one was there. I couldn't see Brandon anywhere at all. I called his name a few times without a reply. I examined the base of the tree, and I could see where Brandon had urinated, but the liquid trailed off into the leaves. Then, I noticed the drag marks. Two even lines had been carved through the leaves and dirt. They went all the way down the slope and then around another hill. That's as far as I could see from my vantage point. I knew I couldn't leave him, but I couldn't help but fear whatever took him might take me too. Before running after him, I pulled out my phone to call for help. No signal. I guess we had lost service when we went down that enormous hill. As quietly as possible, I followed the drag marks. They continued around the next slope and over another. I was sweating heavily, but not from the activity. My body shivered and trembled with nerves. My panic increased when I noticed a few drops of blood beside one of the drag marks, and then I found one of Brandon's shoes. From the top of the next hill, I saw something I hadn't expected. A house. A rough log cabin, to be more accurate. It looked handmade and unstable, but not very old. Some of the wood still had a fresh, bright color of young wood. The drag marks and a thickening blood trail led straight to the cabin's front door. I had been expecting to find some terrible animal at the end of the trail. I thought it might be something I could shoo away and rescue Brandon if he was still alive. Although I should have, based on the rumors about Heather de Alma's wounds, I hadn't considered that I'd face a human adversary if I tried to intervene. A human adversary who had silently overpowered my friend and dragged him through the woods. I wondered if there might be more than one. I crept from tree to tree, circling the cabin and paying close attention to its windows. I didn't want to be spotted. Coming around the back, I noticed a tree standing only a couple of feet from a window. I took a deep breath, trying to steady my racing heart, and began my approach. I froze for a moment when I saw something move in the window. It was white like a sheet, appearing one moment and vanishing the next. I crawled the last few feet to reach the tree. I could hear someone talking on the other side of the window. He had a deep, lilting voice. It sounded clownish, insane. It was hard to make out every word, but the first sentence I understood chilled my blood. Just a prick to cure the sick, he said in his sing-song cadence. Then he asked, Are you ready for your medicine? I waited to hear a reply. Horrific as it would be, I expected to hear Brandon's voice. But there was no reply. No one else spoke before the man childishly exclaimed, Oh goody, then let's get started. I felt a palpable urgency in the air. Somewhere, an invisible clock was counting down and the bell was about to ring. I had to poke my head out from behind the tree to see through the window. I saw a dirty, white lab coat as wide as a ship's sail. The man wearing it was hunched over something on a table. 
I couldn't see what it was at first, but when the enormous man stood tall and stretched, I saw Brandon lying on the table in front of the man, unmoving. Brandon's captor stepped away from the table to do something out of my view. With him out of the way, I got my first full look at Brandon's situation. His shirt had been removed and was being used to prop up his head like a pillow. His eyes were closed, and his mouth hung open. Blood from the gash in his forehead had trickled down his chest, which I was grateful to see rising and falling. His feet and hands were bound to the table. The man who had tied Brandon up returned to the table side. This time he took a position near Brandon's head instead of his feet. He held a small hammer in one meaty hand and a long, pick-like object in the other. I couldn't overpower the man. Of that I felt certain. His hands were the size of my face. His back looked as wide as my arm span. He looked like a human monster. But this was it. I had to decide whether to witness whatever horror he intended for my friend or to intervene and potentially become a victim myself. The man placed the pointy end of the pick at the corner of Brandon's left eye. I made my decision. I pushed away from the tree and ran to the door. I had to stop him. As I rounded the corner, my foot sunk into some loose dirt and I tripped. I yanked my foot out of the hole, spraying myself with dirt. When I wiped my eyes, I saw something bright near my freed foot. It looked like the sleeve of a blue coat. I heard a sharp clink that I'll never forget. It was accompanied by a gurgling grunt. I was too late to save Brandon. Now, I had to save myself. I ran. I didn't try to be quiet or careful. I sprinted, taking full advantage of the adrenaline coursing through me. I crossed the stream and found our bikes, but left them where they were. I didn't want to be slowed down as I climbed the hill. Once I reached the top, out of breath and nearly exhausted, I called for help. The police came, along with some curious townsfolk who had seen all the emergency vehicles rushing to the woods. I led everyone back down the hill where we made a shocking discovery. I was wrong about being too late to save Brandon. We found him a few yards from the base of the hill. He was sitting next to our bikes, flipping one of the pedals idly. Brandon, I asked. He looked at me as if he recognized his name, but he didn't recognize me. I could tell by the way he stared right through me. He looked around at everyone else with the same blank gaze. Red filled his eye and trickled from the corner as if he were shedding tears of blood. Some people stayed back to help Brandon while I led the deputies to the cabin. I didn't want to go back, but the cops wouldn't let me stay behind. I guess they wanted to keep an eye on me and keep me away from Brandon. Once we located it, the police surrounded the cabin and ordered the man to come out. He didn't respond. They closed in a little tighter and one officer approached a window. It's empty, he said. I couldn't believe it. Had the man heard us coming and gotten away? I heard a rush of crunching leaves behind me and spun around. The giant was lumbering towards me with the bloody pick raised above his head. His lab coat, stained with blood and dirt, flapped wildly around him. I stumbled back and fell. A thunder of gunfire erupted all around me. The man barely flinched as bullets tore through him and splashes of blood burst from his chest and stomach. He got all the way to me before his nose exploded and he finally collapsed. I had to roll over to avoid being crushed. As I'm sure you've guessed, the body of the missing man was dug up from the shallow grave I had tripped on. Gordon, Heather, and Brandon have never been the same. 
Doctors and surgeons have tried to undo the damage done by the maniac in the woods, but failed in all three cases. Fingerprints revealed the man's identity as Frank Heron, a disgraced professor who had been fired after spreading some controversial ideas about old-fashioned medical practices for mental patients, including ice pick lobotomies. It seems, although we'll never be certain, that Frank had built his cabin in the woods to study these practices on his own and prove he was right. He had clearly gone insane. Unfortunately, he wasn't stopped before spreading insanity to others. Gordon, Heather, and Brandon. We can only hope that their brand of sanity will never give birth to the same horrors as Frank's. You made it out. Congratulations. If you enjoyed the story, please rate and review this podcast wherever you like to listen. Reviews are the best way to support the podcast and help it grow. You can also become a patron at patreon.com slash thewarningwoods. If you want more creepy content, including the images that accompany each story, follow me on Instagram at thewarningwoods. If you feel ready, meet me here next week for another journey into the warning woods. Thank you for listening. Hey there, this is Justin Bartha. I made a funny new podcast, King of the Egg Cream. It has the greatest cast in the history of podcasts with actors like Louis Black. I'm torn by my feelings for two women. Bobby Cannavale. You can eat it, or if someone hits you, you can put it on your cut. Melanie Linsky. I wonder what these marvelous things are that look just like boiled chicken feet. Jason Ritter. I can break things and pick locks and kill people. Michael Stuhlbarg. The whole point is to inspire people that they should make themselves better. Ari Grainer. No, don't whet its appetite. What are you, an idiot? Me, Justin Bartha. That's not just any egg cream, that's a Lemke's special. And all narrated by the hilarious Richard Kind. This is the story of Harry Dalowitz. And how he rose from nothing to become New York's King of the Egg Cream. So if you like funny true stories, come listen to King of the Egg Cream, available wherever you get your podcasts.